will be remaining in the sanctuary. If you would please, let's turn over to Psalm 66. Psalm 66. Beginning in verse 1. For the choir director, a song, a psalm. Shout joyfully to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you. They will sing praises to your name, Selah. Come and see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There let us rejoice in him. He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. For you have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You have brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through the fire and through the water. Yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay you my vows." which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress, I shall offer to you burnt offerings of fat beasts with the smoke of rams. I shall make an offering of bulls and male goats. Selah. Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell you of what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and he, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard. And he has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his loving kindness from me. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of grace that it is to us, that we might know you, that we might understand you, that we might be drawn near to you, that we might have error corrected in our minds, and that our hearts and our minds will be shifted towards praise and honor and glory of your greatness in Jesus name. Amen. So starting with the, the obvious, the very first thing that we see in verse one, the subscript for the choir director, a song, a Psalm. We don't know who wrote this. It's not attributed to David. It's not attributed to Asaph. It's not attributed to the sons of Korah. It's not attributed to Moses. It's not attributed to some of the other potential authors of some of the Psalms. So this is one of the unusual moments in the Psalms where we completely lack context. Like normally we're able to frame it, you know, when David was hiding in a cave or when the sons of Korah did this or when uh, Moses did that. Or there, There's usually some sort of contextual reality so that we can sort of place our minds where this is referencing. Okay, this is what was going on. This is what was happening. This is who wrote it. So we know something about them. This is a completely contextless psalm. There's no context. We don't have an author. We don't have a situation. We don't have a location. We have absolutely nothing to work on. Which means 
It's just read a response. So however you want to take it. No, that's not, that's not what it means. There's some things that we still know and some things that we still understand that can let, at least let us hone some things in. One thing that we do, and I'm just going to state a lot of things that should be obvious, but they may not be obvious until you really like say it out loud and think about it. So it's written by someone who's a part of the ancient nation of Israel. We do know that. It's, this is a Hebrew psalm in the Hebrew text of the Bible. So we do know that someone who is a part of the ancient nation of Israel is the author of this psalm. Okay, so there's contextual clue number one. Contextual clue number two, it is written for some group of people who were part of the ancient nation of Israel. Because he's talking to them about their history. He's talking to them about their worship. He's talking to them about their God. So we have at least a rough context of an author and a rough context of an audience. Next, we can at least rough date it. It happened sometime well after the Exodus. Because in this psalm, there's a reference in, in pa- deep past tense. This is something God did for them a long time ago. And he talks about them walking across the sea and it was made dry for them. And they were able to, to do that. And it's great work that God did. And so they're looking way back. The Exodus has occurred, which means if they're looking way back to the Exodus occurring, like this is something that had happened. And if they're talking about a variety of things that have happened, and we see that there's a variety of things in the psalm that have happened. There's been oppressions. There's been war. There's been fight. That is a discussion of the group of people who made it into the land of promise and have now endured some of the conflicts that have occurred since then, whether it was conflicts with a nation to drive them out to take the land of promise or it was the conflicts surrounding the life of King David himself, possibly, Or even the conflicts of the civil war that occurred after the end of Solomon's reign when the kingdom became divided. It could be referencing any of those, but we know that this is some author to some group of people who have lived in the land of promise for some period of time and have seen conflicts and have endured them. So we can kind of at least hone in a little bit better and go, all right, so... This is a later nation of Israel, either just post David or Solomon or unlikely, but maybe even post Babylonian exile return back to the nation. It could be that far out. So you say, Philip, why is that important? Because it's important to note the mindset of the people and the things that they've been through. So let's start the first seven verses. There's a declaration to sing and shout God's praise. Shout joyfully to God all the earth. All right, so we're going to just pop quiz it real quick. Who is supposed to shout joyfully to God? All the earth. This is another clue that this is written later. Because the inclusion of the entire planet in the possibility of the covenant reality is something that happens later in the nation of Israel. It doesn't happen a lot, but it's late. There are people, some prophets and some others, who are basically like, hey, you know what? Yeah, I know God made a covenant with our father Abraham, but 
seems like the whole earth probably needs to be a part of what's going on here. And so this is how this psalm starts. Who is it that's supposed to sing and shout joyfully? Shout joyfully to God, all of the earth, everyone, everything on the entire planet. What is it that they're supposed to sing and what is it that they're supposed to shout? They're supposed to sing and shout how awesome God's works are. Say to God, how awesome are your works? So now we get another clue to context. Clearly, it was a teenager that wrote this psalm. Dude, how awesome are your works, man? It's clearly not someone who was in their 30s who had a full-time job. So, or they were from California and they were a surfer. So we had a California teenage surfing Israelite. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I jest. But what is it that we're supposed to sing? What is it that we're supposed to shout? What is it that we're supposed to declare? We are supposed to declare the awesomeness of the works of God. Now, I absolutely love this English word awesome because it has a profound twofold meaning that normally gets ignored. Okay. Usually in our cultural context, when we think about the word awesome, we think about something that was really great. that was really fantastic. It was just amazing. It was hard for us to believe what we saw. And that is absolutely a good and correct way to use the word awesome. Okay? It happens with regularity at my house. I'll be in the other room. I'll be doing something. I'm, you know, Amanda's doing some kind of work. I'm doing some kind of work. We're just, you know, because that's the way it is when you're a grown up. You're just busy and you're working all the time, even when you're not at work, you know. And so you're doing stuff. And then one of the kids from the other room will say, hey, dad. You got to come see this. This was awesome. And usually it's related to some sporting event that I wasn't able to watch. They pause it and they rewind it. And sure enough, some ridiculous, incredible feat of athleticism occurred on the television. It's like, wow, that really was awesome. It's fantastic to see. What's often forgotten, though, is that the root underneath the word awesome is also the same root for our word awesome. Awful. That which is terrible and terrifying. And so let's let's apply this in the context of this psalm. Praise God, shout for joy to God and say to God, how awesome are your works? And what is the first major example that's used in the telling of how awesome God's works are? It was the crossing of the sea and it being dry land. Now, if you are Hebrew coming out of slavery in the story of the Exodus, that's awesome. Why? Because you didn't die. And you walked on dry land. And God did this really weird and amazing thing. If you're the Egyptians chasing them in that story, guess what? That's awesome. As in terrible and terrifying because you drowned to death. Same word describing the same event for everyone who was involved. It was an amazing thing for one group of people. It was a treacherous and terrifying thing for another group of people. It was God's awesome work. And so it's very intentional. If you go back to the Hebrew text, that word actually kind of has that flair to it. 
like that's a really great English word to use here. That old song that people used to sing about our God is an awesome God. Yes, amazing, marvelous, wonderful, and simultaneously great to be dread with fear and terrifying. It's a great word. And so why should we shout to to God? Why should the whole earth shout to God? Why should we talk about how awesome God's works are? The the two top things that happen, verse 6 and 7, the the seed of dry land, the Exodus story. We're not going to go back. We're not going to walk through all of that. But that is a remarkable story in the Old Testament. We're so familiar with it that we actually kind of, kind of, I think it loses some of the punch that it has. But when you contemplate what God did to possibly the greatest nation on the planet at that time, to release a group of slaves and to give them their freedom from slavery to the nation of Egypt and all the plagues and everything that led up to them fleeing and then the pursuit of them by a hard-hearted, stiff-necked Pharaoh and their crossing miraculously on dry land and God himself drowning the enemies that were chasing them after all the other plagues that occurred up to that point. It's incredible. It's an incredible story. There's a reason why all of these thousands of years later, we still tell this story. People still, people who don't care anything about God, don't believe in God, don't care anything about scriptures, they know this story. Like, people know the story. All three major world religions that are based on the monotheism of the Judaic Christian reality, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, have this story in their book. Three, which by the way, totals you up to almost three billion people. If you just do a really big umbrella of Christians and Muslims and and those who follow Judaism, like everybody who sort of kind of follows that religious bent. Two and a half to three billion people have this story in their book. It's an amazing story. It's a really great example of talking about how awesome God's works are. Because it's just remarkable. And then notice what he says, whoever wrote this, in verse 7. He, God, rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Now, that's on the heels of talking about how awesome God's work was when he let them cross on dry land. This is not just a reference to God's mercy for his people. It is also a reference to God putting Pharaoh in check. Pharaoh had exalted himself as God on the earth. If you know anything about ancient Egyptian religion. Pharao, the God of the sun, the one who is the sun incarnate. He, the, the sun was the chief deity of the Egyptians uh, at that particular time. And Pharaoh, essentially, Ra was the great deity represented by the sun. And the Pharaoh essentially was Ra on earth. That's, that's who he was. 
And so basically, God was looking at this man who was declaring himself to be God on earth. And he essentially crushed him and his kingdom so some slaves could go free. And the nation of Israel had nothing to do with it, by the way. If you look closely enough at that story, what did they do to save themselves? Nothing. God did all of it by his might. He rules by his might forever. You want something to shout and sing God's praise about? Shout and sing the praise of God that the fact is true and exists that he rules by his might forever. Doesn't matter who is or isn't occupying a seat in the Oval Office. It's important that you know the issues and it's important that you vote. But if America ceases to be tomorrow, you know that happened in the Bible. They went to bed one nation, they woke up another nation. Like they had no they had no idea. Just instantly. Nation gone, new nation in. We, we aren't these kinds of people anymore. We're something else. If that were to happen tomorrow here, as distressing as that might be to our emotions and to our psyche, God rules by his might forever. And that's worthy of shouting and singing his praises. The fact that God is that sovereign. That it doesn't matter what the earthly powers are or are not doing. God rules from his throne forever. And so what then does this psalmist do? By establishing this grand reason of God's sovereign might, God's sovereign rule. What does this psalmist do in the next few verses? In verses 8 through 15, there is an invitation to worship. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad. Let the whole world know how great our God is through praise. There's an invitation to worship. And why is that? Why should we worship God and call the whole earth to worship God? One reason that it gives here in this section of the psalm is God's faithfulness to us. Even though God rules by his might, even though God is absolutely sovereign, even though God it does awesome works, awesome meaning both great and terrifying, depending on what side of the work you find yourself to be on, even though this is true of our God, he chooses in his divine wisdom to be faithful to us. How backwards is that? As faithless as we are most of the time. And the nation of Israel is basically a history of faithlessness. I know people get frustrated with me when I say that. But you've not, I'm sorry, you've not really read the Old Testament. 
If you don't come away with the notion, hey, every once in a while, somebody kind of gets it right. But for the most part, those people just blew it all the time. Like that's basic. I just gave you a summation compound sentence of the story of Genesis through Malachi. Every once in a while, somebody will get it right a little bit. And they'll tell a little story about how somebody, you know, and he was a righteous judge in Israel. Like, you know, you'll get one of those. And then for like the next 20 pages, it's just a train wreck. And now the nation is in slavery for 400 years and begging God to deliver them. And then somebody gets it right and they get delivered. And then during the time of their deliverance, they blow it again. And then we get a whole nother like 50, 60, 70 pages of God disciplining them because they blew it again. Faithlessness. That's the chief story of the nation of Israel. God tasked them with reflecting his glory in the world, showing the world his greatness by following his covenant reality. And time after time after time, they turned to idols. They became selfish. They became greedy. They became arrogant. They became proud. They followed all sorts of debauchery. They did all kinds of things that were contrary to the mission God gave them. And yet, in spite of that, God was faithful to them. Man, if that's not something that should cause you to worship God to the ends of the earth, even though I keep blowing it, God is faithful to me. So in what ways does the psalmist list that God is faithful to us? The first one listed here in, in verse 9 is he who keeps us in life. I'm just going to say it as plainly as I can so that no one is confused when they leave. You're not dead right now because God kept is keeping you alive. Listen, I'm I'm a fan. Take care of yourself. Make generally good choices about what you eat. Try to move your body around some. Try to, if you have emotional issues, try to get help with that so that you can have a balanced psyche. I'm a fan of people trying to be well-rounded, healthy people. I'm a fan. But I also know that there's an acquaintance of mine, a very good friend of a friend of mine who made a whole lot of really right, good, great choices to take care of himself. And he's healthy and he's strong and he was a runner and half marathons and full marathons. And he's not breathing on his own in a hospital right now as we speak, having an unexpected massive heart attack out of nowhere. And he was doing everything right. Everything right. And you know what? Yeah, that machine's breathing for him. Do you know why he's not dead right now? It's not because that machine's breathing for him. Because God keeps us in life. You are alive right now. Because God keeps you in life. The psalmist is not playing around in the psalm. Like when you just kind of do a cursory reading like we did at the beginning, it seems kind of light. It seems kind of airy. But this is heavy. This is heavy. God is faithful to us. And one of the ways he's faithful to us is we're not dead. And I don't know what your life's been like. I know of people. I've heard of them 
who live lives in such a way that they might should be dead. And they're not. And the only explanation that anyone can give is, wow, God has been looking out for you. It's like, okay. Next, in verse 9, he does not allow our feet to slip. Does not allow our feet to slip. He keeps us steady. That's what he does. He keeps us steady. He keeps us from stumbling. And that's not just physically, that's also spiritually. And then third, and this seems like a really weird way that God is faithful to us, but God has refined us through trials. Starting in verse 10. And then running down through verse 12. For you have tried us, O God. How often, and it's funny to me that this is true, I do it too. How often do you find yourself in the midst of a severe trial and difficulty and your prayer life becomes a prayer life of God, make it go away? When all throughout the Old and the New Testament, it is a clear declaration of the scripture of God that when you face trials and suffering and difficulty, it is God's way of shaping you into what he wants you to be. There's a famous story. It's kind of become more of a meme, really. Where, you know, they, the Olympics come around and you're watching these athletes do all these great feats. And then they interview, you know, regular Joe. And they ask him, well, what do you think about all the, the competitions that's going on at the Olympics? He said, oh, I could do that if I just would exercise. Those who are highly competitive, those who are top in their fields, whatever field it may be, rarely are top in their field just purely by natural things. It's normally cultivated through a great deal of trial and suffering. There was an interview with fastest man who's ever lived, Usain Bolt, and if you've never, if you've never had the, the privilege of like watching him run, like if you didn't see it while he was doing it and you've not gone back and watched, you need to go watch Usain Bolt run. It's, it's, it's a, it's a piece of moving art. It's ridiculous. And they interviewed him and they were asking him because there was an event where he was at and something happened and he, he slipped up and he, and he, he didn't win a race he should have won. And people were giving him a lot of grief for it. And it was kind of at the peak of his time. And, and they were interviewing him, they're asking him about it, and, and he said, listen, he said, everybody wants to talk about what happens in that nine seconds. Everybody's an expert in what happened in that nine seconds. He said, but what they don't see is the decade of hours and hours of work that made that nine seconds happen. The sacrifice, the not staying out, the not, the not having the revelry, not the, not the partying, not doing all the stuff everybody else is doing, watching what you eat, constant 24-7, just every, everything in, everything out, all the time, all the effort, all the work, all they see is the nine seconds. They don't see the hours upon hours upon hours of suffering that you have to go through to do the nine seconds. 
And friends, here's the deal. God is being faithful to you. This is going to sound crazy. God is being faithful to you when he allows you to suffer. Say, Philip, that that doesn't sound right. Of course it doesn't sound right in our health, wealth, prosperity, inundated society that we call the gospel. Because we have some sort of confusion that God demonstrates his faithfulness to us by putting us on a high, easy road. And I'm not saying that God doesn't sometimes bless people with smooth sailing. That does happen from time to time. Occasionally, whole generations are the recipients of the suffering the generation before them went through. And they get the perks of how hard it was for everybody else when they had to fight and claw and do what they had to do. The existence of the United States of America historically is because, in part, the willingness of Protestants to suffer what they suffered in Europe all those years before. So yes, sometimes people have it easy. But for the most part, God is being faithful to us when we're going through it. Notice what it says. For you've tried us, verse 10, O God, you refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden upon our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through the fire and the water. And I have a hard time reading that from the Psalms, not hearing it in the cool voice of the people from the Lord of the Rings on the movie. Anyway, yes, it was tried through fire and the water. Anyway, and so it's, it's just, it's fantastic. Yes, he was a Christian. And yeah, that's why it's in that movie. Anyway, so. And in the book, uh, you brought us out of it into where a place of abundance. That's what the suffering and the trials do. That's what the suffering and the trials do. You brought us to a place of abundance. God's listen to me, friends, this morning, verses 13 through 15. This is what because it talks about all the abundance and the fatness of rams and the mouth uh, giving praise and, and the offerings that are brought to the to the thing. Hear me this morning. God's abundant goodness. Should lead to abundant worship. But usually the opposite is what happens. We come out of the trial, we come out of the suffering, we come out of the difficulty. We had to lean in hard on the Lord because life was hard. And when life is hard and we recognize our smallness, we recognize our frailty, we begin to acknowledge the greatness of God in those moments of suffering. And and we're transformed by that. And then we move out of that back into God's abundance. And because things become easy again, we neglect and forget our God. Friends, hear me. When you move into that season of abundance, that outward display of God's goodness, that's when there should be an abundance of worship. Because not only is God still being faithful to you, He's being faithful to you with a smiling providence. God, thank you that you are faithful and you are abundantly blessing me outwardly right now. It should cause us to worship God even more, not less. And because of the twisted darkness of our own hearts, even in our converted state, because of the twisted darkness of our own hearts, as soon as things get easy, that's when we take a step back from the Lord. 
And the psalmist here is telling us when God gives this abundance, when God leads us out of that suffering and into his goodness, that should lead us to abundant worship. And so how does the psalmist close all this? How does the psalmist tie all this together? There's a declaration starting in verse 16 of God's faithfulness. And the title of this psalm is Jesus, Our Faithful God. Because, friend, when you look at this, this is, this is a, a shortened reality of the totality of the fullness of the incarnational life of Jesus Christ as, our, as the God-man. He was faithful, the scripture teaches us this, when we were not. He was faithful in a way that no human being had ever been. And he was also the God-man, the man who was God and the God who was man. And so we have this declaration of God's faithfulness in verse 16. Come and hear. Now, I want you to notice who this invitation is to. Come and hear all who fear God. Friends, I've said this for years and years and years. It's gotten me in a lot of trouble over the years. But as most of you know, I just don't care. Because it's true, and I don't care if people get angry with me about the truth. Evangelism primarily is not you telling lost people what God did for you. And throughout the scripture... That's not really how you're supposed to do evangelism. Throughout the scripture, when you tell your story of the great things that God has done for you, the environment in the Old and New Testament normally is among other believers. Because they already believe what you believe about the gospel. They already know that God is real. They already know that Jesus is his Christ. They already know that he's been, uh, been raised from the dead. They already know that he saved sinners from their sin. And so now you have a common ground to share this glorious testimony of what God is doing in your life to give all glory to God and to encourage other believers to also give all glory to God. What is evangelism? Evangelism is looking at someone who's lost like you used to be lost and telling them, you are a sinner. And your sin separates you from a holy God. And you must repent. That's, the, that's evangelism. Now, if you want to couple that with, I used to be like you. And there was a time I repented because that's the command of God for all who are sinners is to repent and turn from their sin. If you want to, if you want to personalize it, that's fine. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if it's personal to you or not. It's a command of God. That all men repent. That's the gospel. Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. Doesn't really matter what God's been doing in my life since then. It's not like it's you, you had to use car lot, you know. And be like, hey, look at this thing out here on the outside. We got it all nice and cleaned up for you. Let me show you what's doing on it. No, that's not how that works. Let me show you what God's done with me since he saved me. No. It's inconsequential to the lost man. All he needs to know is that he's lost. Now, if I'm sitting down, though, with a fellow believer, those who fear God, and they're struggling with something, and they're going through something, 
And they don't know, they're having a hard time seeing God in the circumstances that they're facing. And I can, I can lean up next to them and I can say, hey, listen, let me tell you, I went through something kind of like what you're going through right now. Let me tell you of what God has done for me. Because we have a common ground. We believe in Jesus. We know he's raised from the dead. He saved us from our sin. We're new covenant people. We understand the resurrection. And now you're having struggles and you're having doubts and you're having, you're having problems. You're having difficulties. Your faith is wavering. Let me tell you what God has done for me. That's where this testimony comes in. Notice what he says. He says, come and hear all who fear God. I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Because friends, a lost man doesn't care because he's lost. But redeemed friend... There's no greater story that you can share with another redeemed person than to tell them what God has done for your soul and what he's still doing for your soul right now. It's so encouraging to me when I hear what God has done for other people and how he's brought them through and how he's given them that abundance after those times of trial and suffering. It's a a magnificent thing. I cried to him with my mouth. I extolled him with my tongue. And notice what this song, man, this is so good. I cried out to him and he heard me. And notice what he says here. If I had wickedness in my heart, if there, if there was a regard for wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Friends, that's just a theological fact. It's all over the scripture. So the psalmist says it just out loud. Hey, if there were wickedness in my heart, God wouldn't hear me. And then notice what he says. Notice what he says. But he has heard. But certainly, not maybe, not sort of, not kind of, not I hope so. But certainly God has heard. Now, is this psalmist saying that he is not a wicked person? Is that, is that what he's saying? Well, you could deduce that, but that's not what he's saying. Because he's already talked about how faithless they can be. Already talked about how faithful God has to be. What is the psalmist saying? Those who have been brought into the covenant life of God. Who have come into this covenant life by faith. By God's mercy, by God's loving kindness, by God's sovereign goodness. God has declared you righteous. And this is why I tie it to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Because friends, hear me this morning. You are not righteous in and of yourself. You're not. Sorry to break it to you if you were thinking otherwise today. But in Christ... In his gospel, in the work that he did on his, in his death and his resurrection, his ascension, his being seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for his people, because of the reality of Jesus, you are righteous before God. Even with all the sin you struggle with still right now. God, in Christ, has declared you Not guilty. And not only are you not guilty, he has given to you as a love gift the full measure of the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. So that when the father sees you, 
He sees his own son, Christ Jesus. So when I call out to God, if there were wickedness in my heart, he wouldn't hear me. But thanks be to God, the heart I have is the heart of Christ. I've been clothed in his righteousness. I've been declared not guilty. I have been justified before the Father by the completed work of the Son. And I am welcome in, not as a guest, but as a member of his royal family. And I'm seated on thrones with Jesus, crowned with his glory and blessed with his life. And God calls me his child. And so when I call out to him, he certainly hears me. And so do you know what he responds? I love this about this psalm. This is my favorite part of this psalm. Do you know what he responds when he acknowledges this fact that God certainly hears him because God has declared him righteous and not guilty? This is what he says. Certainly he's heard. He's given heed to the voice of my prayer. He's heard me. How should I respond to the fact that God has heard me? Blessed be, praise God. That's how he responds. Praise God. Why? Because he doesn't turn away from my prayer. Friends, when you pray, if you're in Christ, when you pray, God hears you. He may not answer you the way you want him to, but he hears you. And do you know why else the psalmist here calls out for him to praise God? God has not turned away my prayer, nor, and he borrows the verb, so we'll read the verb here, nor has he turned his loving kindness from me. Friends, I'll just be honest. I'll just be straight as we close this. Every day, since my conversion all those years ago, radical as it was, There has not been a day where I have not given God every reason to pull his loving kindness away from me. I wish I could say it was different. I wish I could say I at least got one 24-hour block of time in where I didn't do or say or think something. Where God would be like, you know what, I'm still just okay. I'm okay with you. You you, you had a good day, Philip. Not one day has gone by. Since my conversion, where I have not given God all the justifiable reasons that exist in this universe for him to pull his loving kindness from me. But God, being rich in mercy, has kept his loving kindness on me in spite of myself. Praise God. And friend, if you were to look at your life. If you were to truly evaluate your life, I suspect that your testimony will be much like the one I just gave about myself. That you've given God ample reason to turn his face from you. To abandon you, to leave you to your own devices. And yet God, in his faithfulness in the gospel of Christ Jesus, 
keeps on mercifully loving you. And you know what we should do with that? Praise God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you are faithful when we are faithless. Father God, thank you that you place your merciful love on us and you do not take it away. Father, thank you that your apostle Paul wrote of this in the book of Romans when he asked the question, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? And after running through a host of things, he makes the declaration, nothing. Father, thank you that your grace is greater than my sin. And your faithfulness far outweighs my faithlessness. And it's all because of the work of your son, Jesus, in whose name we praise. Amen. I invite you to stand and sing a song of response together this morning. Oh, mm-hmm.